Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for tuning in to WBAI this afternoon. So have you followed the news out of Washington today? I've been closely watching the debate over the last few months over a new stimulus package and the various proposals by members of the Democratic and Republican parties. And sadly, there wasn't any significant movement today. In fact, what happened was Senate Republicans failed to push through a largely scaled back stimulus plan, what they're calling the skinny bill. And this is one that the Democrats countered was completely inadequate to meet the needs that many areas across our country are facing right now amid the pandemic. What does this all mean? Well, apparently it means that legislators likely are not going to enact another economic recovery package before the November elections. And what took place today, it was split, not surprisingly, along party lines. And frankly, the result is not that surprising because even this even boosts the ability of members of the Republican Party to simply blame the Democrats for the failure. Again, the Republicans called this the skinny bill, but it was dramatically lower. It was lower than what the Democrats had sought. It caught hundreds of billions of dollars from the original $1 trillion proposal that had been unveiled earlier this summer. The Democrats were firm. They refused to accept anything less than $2.2 trillion as far, as far as this package. Now, meanwhile, while this is happening, the global death toll from the pandemic is now more than 900 thousand people and another 27.8 million had been sickened uh, by the virus the virus has now been found in almost every country across the globe and where are the most cases well right here in the united states although india is now surging with about 95 new thousand new cases today and when it comes to deaths we in the united states still have the distinction of topping that list there's a lot of other news today and we're going to get to it throughout the show including uh giving you an update on what the governor announced yesterday about indoor dining and when you'll be able to go back to restaurants starting later this month but for now i want to get to uh two topics today we're going to focus on transit and then we're going to go to education but starting with transit there was some news today about a new rule that's going to take effect starting next week for anyone who's not wearing a mask when they're taking public transit. So to discuss that and much more, I've got on the line Pat Foy, who's the chairman and CEO of the MTA, where he's overseen the agency's day-to-day -day management since April of last year. And if you're not familiar with his name, he previously served as the president of the MTA for two years and before that led the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey uh, from 2011 to 2017. So today I invited him on the show to discuss not only the news of the day, but also how dire the fiscal uh, uh, portrait is of the MTA. So, Mr. Foy, welcome to WBAI. Hey, uh, Jeff, thank you for inviting me. So I want to start with the, the news that developed today, the announcement about a new rule allowing uh, in, in which uh, police are going to enforce when people don't wear masks on mass transit. Can you talk a little about that? this, Jeff. Uh, the law of the state of New York as a result of one of Governor Cuomo's executive orders is that to ride on mass transit, customers have to wear a mask. The good news is that customers are following that directive, which is in the interest of minimizing health risk to them, their co-fellow commuters, and our employees. Uh, on buses, uh, and, and we've done physical counts, physical surveys, on uh, MTA buses, New York City Transit buses, 96% of our customers are wearing masks. On subways, 91%. On Metro North and Long Island Railroad, well over 90%. Public health officials around the world agree that the single most important thing you can do to protect your health and that of other customers and our employees is, is to wear a mask. The MTA has no interest in issuing summonses or collecting fines. This is not a revenue thing. We, we hope to do uh, issue as few summonses as possible, but the goal is to get already high levels of mask wearing and mask compliance to even higher levels to minimize public health risk from the pandemic, from the virus, to our customers and our employees. 
and, and you are preaching to the choir when it comes to me, because as I've talked about on this show, uh, m- many episodes is the importance of wearing a mask, not just on mass transit, but when you are going outside, when you're going to be around other people, when you're visiting establishments. So it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. And you already have, as you pointed out, a very high percentage of people who are wearing masks on the subways. So thank you. Um, you Island, the reason I wanted to have you on was you had a, a piece in the New York Times last week with the TWU president, John Samuelson, that outlined the dire situation in which you said the subways are facing a five alarm fire. Let me let me put it bluntly. How bad is the MTA's financial situation as a result of the pandemic? Uh, it is it is awful. It is unprecedented. And just to put it in context, Jeff. The effect on MTA ridership, subways, buses, Metro North, the Long Island Railroad, is orders of magnitude worse than the effect of the Great Depression in 1930, in the 1930s. It's had such an adverse effect on our ridership, and I'll just give your listeners a couple of statistics. At the height of the pandemic, in the worst days of the pandemic in New York City, subway ridership was down 95%. It's recovered from that level. Yesterday, September 9th, ridership on the subways was down 73%, but we carried a million six passengers and we carried about a million passengers on buses yesterday. In the worst days of the Great Depression in the 1930s, subway and, and bus, and it was bus and streetcars back then, we don't have streetcars anymore, but we're down about 15, 16%. The levels of declines in ridership, and ridership's important because we get half our revenues at the MCA from our customers in terms of subway and bus and commuter rail fares and tolls, and the other half from a package of subsidies that the state legislature has put in place. Orders of magnitude worse than the worst days of the Depression. So then what will it take to recover? So look, uh, I, I, I want to uh, first acknowledge and applaud the work of Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi in terms of the CARES Act, which was which was passed earlier in the year by the uh, by the Congress. Uh, the uh, w- what the MCA needs to get through the rest of 2020 and 2021, Jeff, is 12 billion dollars of additional federal aid because of the effect the pandemic has caused on our operations. At the beginning of the year, we expected in 20, at the MTA, we expected in 2020 to have a surplus of about $80 million. The pandemic has wiped that out and eliminated literally billions of dollars of revenue. And and what we need, and and the House has been incredibly supportive of this in the Congress, the uh, the Senator Schumer, the leader of the Democratic Party, uh, part of the uh, United States Senate has as well, but the Republican leadership of the Senate is holding up additional aid for the MTA and, for that matter, for the state and the state of New York and the city of New York. And it is really, we're in a dire situation. We're in a one-in-a-hundred-year fiscal tsunami. And if we don't get the support that I just described, we're going to have to make draconian cuts to service on subways and buses and, and commuter rails. Just to size it for your listeners, up to a 40% reduction uh, in subway and bus service, up to a 50% reduction on Long Island Railroad and and Metro North, including layoffs of about 8,500 of our colleagues. And what's so stunning about that is who gets impacted by that? I mean, I have a car, I've been able to get around, and tomorrow actually is my first uh, day in six months getting back on the subway, and and I'm happy to. Um, but you know, when you think of who gets impacted by this, this is going to affect quite a, this could affect quite a number of people who rely on the subways, uh, including many of our essential workers. Well, of course. So Jeff, if you're returning to the subway as probably a lot of your listeners are are as well, here's what you're going to see. One is we, uh, we, we've surveyed our customers, 70% of them, over 70% of them say they have never seen subway cars or subway stations as clean as they are. The reason for that is since since the pandemic began, uh, literally in the first couple of days of the pandemic, we began a regime of not cleaning but disinfecting subway cars, subway stations, buses, Metro North and Long Island Railroad stations and, and cars. Multiple times a day we're disinfecting them. Obviously that comes at a significant cost. 
and that's one of the one of the reasons, one of the many reasons we need federal support. But stations are being disinfected, subway cars are being disinfected, and our customers are noticing. Again, 70% of them say never seen the stations, uh, subway stations, and cars as clean as they are. You will that'll be your experience tomorrow. The other thing that we've done on beginning on May 6th was to close the subways first time in the hundred over 110 year history of the subways to close them from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. to allow the state subway stations and cars to be disinfected multiple times a day. That helps substantially the TWU forces to be able to do that work. But it also allowed the City Department of Homeless Services, the MTA police, the NYPD uh, to, uh, uh, to get services to the, to the homeless uh, at 1 a.m., everybody's got to leave the, uh, the the subway unless you're wearing a New York City Transit uniform or a police uniform. And it's allowed the unsheltered to get medical and mental health services, but also shelter. And that has been a good thing for those uh, individuals without shelter and for our customers. And we've got just a few minutes left. So when you think about potential service cuts and layoffs, what are the broader implications? Well, look, here, here's a, that's an excellent question. Here's the reality. The New York City economy and the regional economy depends on the services provided by the MTA. Uh, in, in normal times, the subways would carry 5.5 million passengers on a normal average day pre-pandemic, 2.1 million riders uh, on the buses. The uh, economy of New York is dependent on a healthy, thriving MTA. The service reductions and the layoffs that I described a minute ago are things that no one at the MDA, MTA wants to contemplate or implement. But in, in, the, in the event of a failure of the Republican leadership in the United States Senate to address these issues and get the MTA funding, these are steps that we will be forced to take. Uh, and that would have a devastating impact on employment, on job creation, and on the recovery of the New York City and New York State regional economy. And given what you just said, my final question then is, what's the message you want to send to Washington, not just the president, but to our congressional representatives right now about the urgency of these needs? Well, I, I think we've got to be clear uh, about our focus. The New York congressional delegation uh, and the, 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 Senate, uh, the Senate Democrats led by Senator Schumer uh, have been supportive of the MTA at every step of, uh, of the way. It was disappointing today to hear that the Republican uh, Senate, the United States Senate, was not able to take action on a uh, COVID, an additional COVID uh, relief bill. Uh, and, the, and the message is that it is in the interest of New York City, New York State, but also the national economy, because the New York City, New York State region accounts for approximately 10% of national GDP. It's in the national interest that the MTA get this funding to be able to continue subway, bus, and commuter rail service in the levels that will be required to create jobs, to put people to work, and to make sure that the New York City and New York State regional economic recovery is not thwarted or stunted by a lack of funding. With that, Pat Foy, Chairman and CEO of the MTA, I would like to thank you so much for being here on WBAI today. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. And just a moment ago, I was talking with Pat Foy, uh, Chairman and CEO of the MTA, about the uh, cities and the state's transit woes. So with that, I want to get to my next guest, Nicole Gelinas, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which is a conservative think tank. She's also a contributing editor to the Institute's City Journal and a columnist that many of you probably, this is where probably you see a lot of what she's writing, because I, I see it all the time, in the New York Post. She writes about urban economics and finance. She is a CFA charter holder and the author of After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington. And she recently weighed in uh, on the issue of mass transit and cities that they could grind to a halt without federal aid. Uh, and she wrote another New York Times piece. And in that piece, she said that Congress should save transit, not for transit's sake, but to save cities. So that's why I wanted to have her on the show. Nicole, welcome to WBAI. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. 
So I just talked to Pat Foy about the fiscal challenges that the MTA is facing. And you said that the pandemic, or you wrote at one point, I believe that the pandemic is an existential crisis for transit. How so? Yeah, well, I think if we if we look back to the big crisis that New York City faced in the 20th century, it was the mass marketing of the private automobile. And people, obviously, the car existed before World War II, but in the years after World War II, as people came home from the war, as they had more discretionary money to spend, they really started buying cars. And, of course, they, they, the federal state and state government were building highways. And so people, given the choice and given certain government incentives, decided, I'm going to buy a car, I'm going to move my family to the suburbs, And the jobs that New York City depended on were factory jobs, where people had basically walked to work or take mass transit to work in, uh, you know, the kind of uh, urban factories in the garment district and even metalworking and so forth all over the five boroughs. And so once people had a car and could get to a factory job in a car, there was no need to keep the factory in New York City. So New York City basically became obsolete for the industrial age, you know, between the late 1940s and the 1970s. So a big painful change that the city had to make was, okay, we're not going to get these factory workers back. We became a hub of white-collar employment. And this was something that the city government really decided in the 1960s. We're going to build up Midtown Manhattan as a district for office workers. We're just going to locate all of these skyscrapers, high density, all along 6th Avenue, 5th Avenue, Madison, make this into a place where 4 million people come every day. They work in offices, and then they go home to the outer boroughs, the suburbs, to Connecticut and in New Jersey. And, of course, many people who work in offices are not white-collar workers. They are uh, house, uh, uh, you know, cleaners. Uh, maintenance workers, security workers, people who work in restaurants, people who serve the tourist trade. But all of this is based on a very dense conglomeration of Midtown, which in turn is based on mass transit. And yes, the pandemic will end hopefully sooner rather than later. But I fear that the exodus of the white collar workforce over the past six months and the revelation that a lot of this work can be done at home this is going to be a long-term change to New York's economy, and it may take us years again to adjust to this, and the adjustment may, might be very difficult. But absolutely, in order for New York to come back in any form over, over just the short term, we need to get people back on transit safely, and we need to fund transit before people come back in the numbers that they were riding it you know, six months ago or seven months ago. So transit agencies have never before faced a situation where they've got to pay to run full service with a fraction of the revenue. Is the pandemic solely to blame for the situation that we're in, or are there other factors that really have to be considered? I think for now we can blame the pandemic. I mean, the city and the state were telling people, Stay home if you don't have to go to work up until, you know, over the midsummer. And even now, office buildings are capped at a certain capacity. Restaurants, when they open, will be capped at 25 percent capacity. We have no real tourists because global flights are or the global borders are still closed to, to tourism. But I think as time goes on, it becomes less the pandemic and more of the fiscal crisis that the MTA is facing, where if if they don't get their short-term aid from Congress, if they do cut service by 40%, then people will say, well, you know what, I wanted to try going back to work, but I, I can't wait 20 minutes for a train. I can't have trains that are delayed and unpredictable. I'm going to start working at home again. And the other thing is People for better or for worse, and of course not universally, you know, some people like it, some people don't, but they have found that they are productive working at home. And so it's not that they'll never go back to an office again, but if people start working two days a week in an office and three days a week at home or two weeks in the office and two weeks at home, that has vast implications for the MTA's revenue, you know, like half of their 
half of their customers usually buy monthly passes. They wouldn't need to do that anymore. And it has vast implications for the foot traffic in Manhattan. You know, if every office building only generates half of the foot traffic compared to a year ago, that means a lot for the retailers, the restaurants, the arts venues. It, it, it is a big change to the ecosystem of Manhattan. And, and given what you said, it's all, you know, I, I had uh, typed down the phrase, it's all a downward spiral. Services cut back, fares go up, you know, fewer people then decide to take, uh, to use mass transit. Yeah. And I mean, I think the best thing for us to do right now is we have to try to recreate what existed last year because we have nothing to replace it with. I mean, people may not come back to offices five days, but we have to at least encourage them to try it. And so I think the city could be doing a lot more, uh, you know, more more bus lanes, more bike lanes, so that people can, can alleviate some of the concerns about crowding if everyone comes back all at once. And Congress, obviously, the job there is to fund these MTA de- deficits with some cost reforms, of course, for the next 18 months, so that you don't take something that might happen, which is that people don't come back to their offices and we have no idea what to do with Midtown, and make it into something that is absolutely going to happen. I mean, we should be trying everything we can do to recreate the ecosystem of Manhattan and the ecosystem of three states that have sort of relied on on the way we've set this up, rather than say, okay, we're not going to do this anymore and have nothing to replace it in terms of the economic activity and the tax revenues. And uh, there was a piece you wrote in the New York Post just a few days ago where you compared uh, our system with how London's underground system runs, and you pointed out that they have a more rational approach to public transportation. How so? Yeah, and it's not just London versus New York. It's kind of like Britain versus the U.S. on multiple levels. I mean, just on the London versus New York level, all of their transportation is in one agency. So the same agency that runs the subways and buses is the same agency that decides where to put a bus lane, and also the same agency that that is in charge of the congestion pricing fee. And actually, during the pandemic, they increase the congestion pricing fee so that people don't start to drive in instead of taking transit because no dense city can replace people on transit with people in cars. But another big difference is the UK government is mostly centered in London. The UK prime minister was the mayor of London. So the UK government understands to a far greater degree you cannot give up on the London transit system. And, of course, you know, there's some bickering, there's some infighting. You know, if you read the London papers every day, you could say, well, the prime minister is doing this and that wrong, which is certainly true. But for for the broad picture, they are almost certain to maintain service on the London underground, whereas there's a real risk that Congress just doesn't care. So I would think that if fare hikes are on the horizon and possibly sizable fare hikes, that's going to impact a, a number of people in this city. What do you think is going to bring riders back and make them trust the system again? Yeah, uh, and certainly I think if we're going to raise fares or tolls, we should be raising the tolls first because you don't uh, – and I know that the tolls are not a direct form of congestion pricing – but you want to discourage people from turning to their cars as much as possible. And for the moment, with subway ridership so low, a fare increase is basically just a tax on lower-paid essential workers. But, yeah, I mean, what do you do to get people back on transit? First of all, you have to give them something to do. And, of course, we don't want to do that if we have a second wave. We want to keep to the public health measures and everything else. But making Manhattan a safe and pleasant destination, if you haven't been in the city in six months, maybe you want to take your family to a museum, take people to Rockefeller Center, go out to eat. You want to make these first uh, commuter rail or subway or bus trips as pleasant as possible, which I think the MTA is basically doing right now. I mean, I was on the E-Train an hour ago. They were The people were cleaning it at the terminal. Everyone was wearing their mask. But any reduction in service or any deterioration in that 
because they just don't have the money. You don't want people's first trips back to the city to be miserable because then they'll say, well, I tried this a couple times. I didn't like it. And so I'll, I'll go back to doing what I've been doing for the past six months. So the MTA has been urging the federal government to essentially get us out of, out of this hole. What do you see as the solutions and should federal aid be tied to specific reforms? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that the state of New York is basically broke. The city of New York is basically broke. They're not going to they're not in a position to aid the MTA. The one thing, the, the one exception to that is that I think the state should be much more aggressive about congestion pricing. You know, as you know, the state enacted congestion pricing a year and a half ago. It is allegedly being held up in Washington for reasons that are very murky. You know, the state is always suing the federal government over uh, policy and, and practical differences with the Trump administration. I still don't understand why the state isn't being more aggressive with getting the federal government to OK congestion pricing. But other than that, which isn't going to bring in as much money right now as it would have anyway, this is really all up to the federal government. I mean, there's no other level of government that can borrow so cheaply and get money out as quickly as the federal government. But yes, absolutely, they should tie it to some cost reforms. I mean, are moving a passenger on transit in New York is a is a multiple more expensive than it is in London or continental Europe. So they can start by just looking at the various reasons for that. You know, everything from a different method of healthcare provision to construction costs and then start to tie that to concrete reforms. But we don't, I mean, you can, you can provide the funding and then ask them to meet certain benchmarks over the next two years. I mean, you don't want to starve them into making reforms because that just never works. You're going to get no service and still high costs. You said, Nicole, you said that the city of New York is basically broke. And when we uh, let's just segue over to what the, the city is facing right now. One area that's being floated, that's being discussed is uh, whether New York City should borrow until revenues recover. Is that the right approach? And kind of what lessons can we take away from past experience that would apply now? I don't think the city should be borrowing right now because – they are not saying what is the goal that we're borrowing toward. So, like, the, the mayor is going out there and saying, if we cannot borrow this money, we're going to have to lay off 22,000 people. And he's starting with frontline workers, like emergency medical technicians. There is cost cutting that the city can do. I mean, the city has added... 30,000 workers over the past seven years. Most of these workers are not frontline essential workers. A lot of administrative workers, staffers in the mayoral office who are making well into six figures. We are, we are about to make a billion and a half retroactive payments as a raise for teachers for work that they did more than a decade ago. There are a lot of cuts that the city can make before it then goes to the legislature and says, okay, now we need to borrow X amount, but here is the goal that we want to be at next year and set out four different contingency plans. You know, if the pandemic is over and everyone comes back, great. If we're at 70% of where we should be next year, we should have a plan for that too. But I don't see the, I don't see the city making these different contingency plans. They just want to borrow as a first resort. And we've got just about a minute or two left. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder, you know, this pandemic is unprecedented, during, you know, during this era. We've not faced something like this before. But do you believe there should have been steps that the mayoral administration could have taken to prepare for a downturn? Not, not no one could have expected it would have been this bad, I don't think, but should the city have taken certain steps and what would they have been? Yeah, I think so. I mean, absolutely. Like the, the mayor is not wrong to say, you know, we, we could never have prepared for something like this. Like we need some federal aid at, uh, more than what we already got at the city and state level too. But it does not help us, for example, that we start this off with still a very patchwork network of 
bus lanes and bike lanes. So if you are nervous about taking transit right now, maybe you're also nervous about riding a bike. And so you're just staying away from, from your, your workplace. I mean, building out much better bike lanes, bus lanes, um, doing a better job of completely closing streets off to the outdoor restaurants and making that more hospitable. I mean, we're just, the city is just not very flexible and nimble, even with things that don't cost a lot of money. So I think that's been a real impediment. And Nicole, as I wrap up, where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Sure. And thanks for asking, Jeff. And, and thanks thanks for uh, having me on again. Uh, people can go to city-journal.org or manhattan-institute.org. And I'm on Twitter as well. Nicole Gelinas, thank you so much for joining me here today on WBAI. Thank you. So thank you. You've been li- Thank you. So you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, and we are also streaming live at WBAI.org. I was just talking with uh, Nicole Gelinas, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, uh, about the city's transit woes. Uh, for those of you who were, uh, who were listening uh, last week, I had on Randy Weingarten from the American Federation of Teachers, and she gave us uh, her views on school reopenings. And for those who are listening, she texted me uh, during the show because what happened while we lost her was her phone went dead. She hadn't charged it. So advice to all guests, make sure that your phone is charged. Uh, but she, we were talking about whether uh, our school system here in New York City was prepared uh, to reopen and also what was happening across the country. So uh, the administration, the mayoral administration and the chancellor delayed, as you know, the start of school for both remote and in-person learning until later this month. But there are still a number of challenges ahead. So that's why I invited on Mark Traeger, who is the council member for the 47th district in New York City. And that covers Bensonhurst, Coney Island, uh, Gravesend and Seagate, because he chairs the city council's education committee and which is also important because he's he he doesn't just what is it talk the talk but he walks the walk he also spent eight years teaching world history government and economics at new utrecht high school so welcome back to wbai councilman great to be with you jeff thank you so much and uh, again i appreciate your time on this very serious issue you have been a strong advocate for a delayed reopening of schools, saying the city was not ready. And you recently had, uh, as education chair, you presided over a hearing on the reopening of schools for this academic year. Did you leave more confident about the new school year? No, Jeff. I, I, it, the hearing left me even more concerned, and, and I'll explain. You know, again, we are uh, the largest school system in the country, 1.1 million students. Um, we are in the backdrop of not just a global pandemic, but also one of the worst financial crises the city has faced. Um, we are already facing a seven to eight billion dollar deficit going into this year, already growing. The state is in, is, is in very bad shape as well. Um, and I've argued that we are too large of a school system to come back at any attempt of normalcy. And I, I believe that, uh, you know, school staff and kids, they're not returning to a new school year. They are returning to a hurried and sloppy attempt to try to manage crisis. Um, and so the hearing that I just had, which the DOE did not come uh, because they didn't feel obligated to come to discuss a resolution uh, on my call to delay reopening, because again, State granted the mayor full control of the school system until June 2022. But I'm going to continue to use my platform to speak truth to power and hold them accountable. Uh, But a number of school staff uh, uh, complained to me that their schools have poor or inadequate ventilation, inadequate PPE, still no nurse, uh, a lot of questions about staffing. Uh, Matter of fact, Jeff, give you an update from my hearing. I, I got a result. Um, you might have recalled when I uh, publicized the, uh, the tissue paper test at a school yes. in Manhattan where it's, it's, it was, you know, the, the day after the mayor, you know, promised to have a comprehensive, robust ventilation inspection process, with, we, we got 
pictures of a uh, yardstick uh, clipped with a piece of toilet paper to see if there's ventilation coming out of a classroom. Um, that was in the MLK campus in Manhattan. That classroom failed the tissue test, but at the hearing that I had, a principal from the building testified that a number of classes failed the test. None of the classes have windows. The ventilation system has been broken. Uh, and that school, as a result of our coverage and reporting, has been told that they cannot reopen by the 21st because of, of the severity of the issues that, that they're facing. And they're not alone, Jeff. So, yes, I, I left the hearing even more concerned and with a lot more questions. You know, I think, and I'm not a mathematician, but I'm trying to count the days, the number of school days between now and the 21st. Do you really think, I mean, over the next five, six, six days, and then the seventh being the 21st when in-classroom instruction would begin again, do you think they're going to have all their uh, all their stuff together by then? Uh, no, Jeff. And, and I think, you know, I think if we've learned anything this year, you know, during crisis, you need full honesty, transparency. As we've just learned, you know, the president of the United States uh, knew about the dangers of COVID back in uh, February and was not transparent and honest with the American people. And I think the least we can do and the most urgent thing we can do is just be fully honest and transparent. Just this morning, I got an email from a community-based organization that provides UPK services to our young children. They have not received any PPE whatsoever, nothing. Um, also, they were told that they will not be provided a full-time nurse. Remember, the mayor made a pledge that every school, every you know, every site will have a full-time nurse. Apparently, that does not extend to community-based organizations providing UPK or 3K services. So, you know, I I am very concerned, and and I and I think that this date of September 21st remains an arbitrary date. Um, the city is not prepared. But Jeff, I also want to make clear: I have ma- I have major disagreements with the mayor. But the one point where, where I think the mayor is valid is that the city is in severe financial crisis and New York State cannot just act like an observer. You know, there are times when the governor speaks about the city as if, you know, he's watching, you know, as a bystander. He's the governor of New York and the state has a responsibility to take care of the cities in New York and to take care of the school districts. Um, And so we need state help as well in the absence of federal leadership. And Councilman, I'd read that a, a disproportionate number of parents of students of color have so far opted to keep their kids home for remote only instruction. What do you think the long term impact of this is going to be? Oh, look, this there was trauma before the pandemic. This pandemic has you know blown that wide open. Um, these are some of you know some of the same communities that did not even get their technology delivered to them in a timely way. You know, there were certain, you know, well-resourced communities that were talking about Zoom or a Google platform for remote learning when communities like mine were still waiting for the iPads to be delivered. Um, And so there were children that did not have any technology or any Internet for months. Um, There are children who never received one day of live instruction because of the technology lag and because of the lack of training on how to provide remote learning, while other communities which had resources and the ability to raise private money had a seamless transition to remote learning. Um, there are so many kids, so many stories of children who are, you know, facing, you know, food insecurity, housing insecurity. I learned of cases where high school students, and as you mentioned, Jeff, I'm a former high school teacher, so I'm in touch with many of my colleagues and school stakeholders, where a number of high school students have taken on additional responsibilities during the pandemic because their mom or dad might have lost their job, and they're being asked now to help, you know, pay the rent and put food on the table, and they're working as essential workers to help their parents pay their bills. And they chose remote learning now, not because they wanted to, but because they had to, because they have to now work to support family. I mean, this is painful stuff, Jeff, and this this trauma is not temporary. This will be generational. We have a lot of work to do to 
to, to better meet the needs of our people and to deal with the trauma and the crisis that they're experiencing every day. Do you think the system should have just stayed fully remote this academic year? You know, the, the government, you know, that the state decided uh, back in June and throughout this summer not to issue the city borrowing authority. If New York State wanted school districts to have the resources to operationalize plans in a safe way, because remember, Jeff, to be clear, the New York State Health Department and the New York State Education Department both released their reopening guidance in mid-July. So that's very important because that came out both after the state and city advanced their budgets. So I reached out to the New York City Independent Budget Office to give me an estimate of how much does it cost to comply with this guidance. They're in the process of completing their report but I'm, I'm being told initially that, that, that the cost of complying with the new guidance, uh, because of all the social distancing and the staffing issues and the PPE and, and the nurses and all the safety protocols, we're talking, you know, tens of millions of dollars of added costs, which were never accounted for. So if New York State wanted to have a better plan, they should have funded it. But I think many school districts around New York State are shifting to remote because they don't have sufficient resources. And last point, Jeff, let me very quickly with you. I I am not a believer in the hybrid model. I have many issues with it. I did, I don't know if, if folks saw, and I'll, I'll be happy to, to, to quickly summarize my proposal. Um, I, I think the hybrid model has many issues. Number one, um, what do working parents do? Uh, if your child goes to school on Monday, but can't go to school on Tuesday, who is paying for the cost of child care for, for working parents? Uh, that, that, that's a very serious issue. Uh, also, according to some infectious disease experts, they, they try to tell the public, manage exposure to people. So if, if a child is with one group of kids on Monday, but is in a different setting on Tuesday with a different group of kids in a child care setting, you're increasing contact with more people. So, um, what I am putting forward and what I put forward uh, earlier this summer um, is a plan that says, number one, we need to get money from the state to operationalize plans and to meet safety protocols. And once we do that, I believe in a phased-in approach where we prioritize in-person services for uh, elementary, early childhood, children with special needs, uh, uh, children in temporary housing, multilingual learners, give them the option of five days a week in person with the option to opt out while keeping high school remote. There's a couple of benefits here. Number one, many elementary school children tend to live closer to their school. They don't have to, you know, use buses and trains to travel across the city. We still have to manage a large city, a dense city in a pandemic. Number two, according to education research, you know, a, a child is only four years old once. You, you don't get this time back. And if they're not reading at, at, at level by second grade, it's hard to catch up later. So there are children who need more in-person services than others. Uh, the child care needs of a five-year-old are far greater than the needs of a 17-year-old. And uh, I also argue that many high school students are, are caretakers for their younger siblings because of the challenges with remote learning. So if you allow younger kids to go to school, and older kids can stay remote, can actually allow them to, you know, receive instruction. So Boston is moving in that direction. The city of Albany is moving in that direction. The city of Denver is moving in that direction. I believe that that's a better equitable plan in terms of equity. It solves your child care issues. It solves the education issues for kids who need in-person the most. But unfortunately, we don't have the power to overrule the mayor because of mayoral control. So if we get to the, the 21st and the UFT is not pleased with the progress or they may say lack of progress and they uh, move to strike, is this something you'd endorse? I'm in full solidarity with educators um, who have been working nonstop. You know, physical buildings might have been, you know, shut down uh from March, although some buildings were still open to, to feed families. So I want to give a, a huge thank you to our amazing school food workers, school cleaners, school safety crossing guards who have been working throughout the pandemic feeding families. But educators have been maintaining connections with their children 
um, more ways than one and through phone calls, through Zooms, through check-ins, and, um, and, and they care deeply about their kids. And I could tell you, Jeff, as a former teacher, before I could ask my students to open a notebook in class, I have to first establish trust, and I have to first establish a safe and supportive learning environment. Um, that trust was shattered in March. It has not been repaired. If anything, it's getting worse. So I stand in solidarity with educators who are speaking up not just for their profession, but they're speaking up for the, for the safety and well-being of their students and their school community members. So, yes, I'm in full support with teachers. They are speaking up much more than just for their profession. And you started to touch on this, and I want to expand to another area. Uh, you talked about, you know, how parents are also going to have to adjust if there's this hybrid model. Uh, I work with one organization, the Partnership for the Homeless, that deals with issues involving people experiencing homelessness, and they've talked with me about the concerns that many of the students face being in shelters or hotels because of the lack of uh, consistent Wi-Fi or spaces to be able to learn. How should the system or how should the city address these issues? Well, I, I'm happy you raised that because that's absolutely correct. Uh, a number of shelters do not have adequate um, either Wi-Fi signals or, or communication signals where the, the, the data is not catching on to the iPads and the kids cannot learn. Um, and again, you know, I, I look at the hybrid model and I, I look at it under the lens of equity and it fails. It fails from a, from a working family standpoint in terms of childcare costs. And it fails, you know, from a large standpoint because not every child has the same need as far as in-person services. There are children who desperately rely on in-person services more so than others. Um, and, you know, in an ideal situation with no pandemic, yeah, let's, let's get back into school and let's, but, but we're not in a normal time. And the mayor's plan just fails the equity test because there are children who, who, who rely on schools to be a sanctuary, a safe space um, to provide critical relationships and critical services that they're not getting um, elsewhere. So, Jeff, that organization is absolutely correct. Um, and, you know, I think we just heard recently again that the mayor just signed or some of the bus contracts. Uh, remember, the city has a legal obligation to provide bus transportation to require it. Uh, but, Jeff, I predict a very rocky start because normally uh, bus contracts are signed in the middle or early part of summer. Why? Because School bus drivers need a refresher, and in a pandemic, they need some new training, and they need to come up with these draft routes to come up with a, a, a feasible and a timely manner to pick up kids at, you know, at the right time and drop them off before the start of school. And you can't overlook that because if you skip that process, you'll have the chaos you had two years ago when there were many misstops, latenesses, kids never got picked up. And unfortunately, I don't take joy in saying this, but there'll be a very rocky start because school bus drivers in some cases have just literally been called in. They're just going to start getting some of their training. They haven't gotten their routes yet. Families don't even know what school bus is coming to pick up their kids. So I, I am very concerned about how the start of school is shaping up to be. And we've got just one minute left. Uh, We've got essentially after tomorrow, we've got one more week before in-person instruction is expected to begin. What would make you happy that, you know, what do you want to happen just within the next week if it's possible? I mean, Jeff, I, I, it would it would make me pleased if, if the mayor and the governor can actually put differences aside and work together and, and level and be honest with New Yorkers um, and for the state to give the city and all school districts in New York the resources that they need to, to operationalize safety plans to the best of our ability. I still argue that we're too big to come back fully at once. I believe in a, in a phased-in approach. But what, what would make me pleased, of course, I would love the, the federal government to do its job and to, and to provide a stimulus to states and cities. I don't see that happening with, the, with this chaotic president, but I would like to see the governor and the mayor work better together on behalf of the kids and families of our city and our state. And Councilman, if people want to go to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? 
Uh, folks can feel free, feel free to email me, uh, mtrager uh, at uh, council.nyc.gov. I also have a, a, a Twitter, uh, which I'm pretty active on, to keep folks posted on school, school news. Uh, that's uh, Mark Trager 718 and I do have a Facebook page where I post updates about school issues on a, on a daily basis these days. And I'd be happy to respond to any concerns, uh, schools or city-related. Councilman Mark Traeger, thanks so much for appearing here on WBAI today. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Appreciate it. So during the interview, by the way, the councilman mentioned something, uh, and I'm not sure if you had heard about it, but it's Bob Woodward's new book. It's uh, going to make a lot of waves. It already has started to because this book, which is uh, coming out shortly, uh, reveals that President Trump, downplayed the severity of the coronavirus and repeatedly denigrated the U.S. military. But, you know, one of the quotes that just was so surprising, uh, and this is apparently recorded, um, that despite knowing that the virus was deadly, Trump said, quote, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down because I don't want to create a panic. So this is going to make a lot of headlines in the next week. Um, one thing I mentioned at the outset of the show, if you had not heard, the governor did announce yesterday, did announce on Wednesday, uh, some good news, news, particularly for businesses. The governor announced that indoor dining at city restaurants is going to begin again, yet at reduced capacity at the end of this month on September 30th. And there are a lot of restrictions. Uh, as far as that you have to wear a mask unless you're seated at a table. Tables have to be six feet apart, and anyone entering is going to have to have their temperature checked at the door. And one other thing, we've talked about contact tracing on this show. They're going to require that at least one person in each of those parties uh, provides information to be contacted in case there is an issue, and you, they need to be in touch with you. Uh, and one other thing before I close, I talked with Pat Foy, the chairman, about how it's going to be, you can be fine starting this coming Monday if you're not wearing a mask on mass transit. Well, if you don't have a mask, and I hope you do, why don't you get a WBAI mask? Get a mask. It's only, I think it was $30, $35 each by donating 35. to WBAI. $35. WBAI mask. You can walk around with and show off your WBAI pride. Here's how you do it. You just call and you're supporting our station when you do this. And you're also uh, helping keep yourself uh, healthy and the people around you. Call the number 516-620-3602. Make a donation. $35. Ask for a mask. Or become a BAI buddy. That's what I do. I make a contribution every single month. goes right on my credit card. 516-620-3602. Or go online to give to. That's the number two. Give to WBAI.org. I want to thank my guests today. MTA Chairman and CEO Pat Foy. Followed by Manhattan Institute's Nicole Gelinas. And then who you... Just heard talking about the reopening of schools and his concerns, New York City Council member Mark Traeger. If you missed any part of the show, it'll be up on our website at WBAI.org in just a little while. I will be back next Thursday with more great guests. But then on Sunday, September 20th, when I host City Watch at 10 a.m., I'll have the former SBS commissioner, Rob Walsh, discussing the Urban Fellows Program. And then a reporter whose byline you might know, New York Times reporter Sarah Maslin-Near. She's got a new book out called Horse Crazy, and I just finished the chapter on the American Museum of Natural History. So you should be sure to tune in. That is on Sunday, September 20th at 10 a.m. Again, thanks for tuning in to Driving Forces, and have a great day. Music